throughout Britain, men and women are foregoing the 9 to 5 jobs introduced during the Industrial Age as they embrace new technologies within the digital revolution. And these two chaps are here to help. Welcome to the Powerful Nonsense Podcast, the show about mindfulness and entrepreneurship in the digital economy. With your hosts, Wayne Ingram and Jem Yildiz. We've got some next level powerful nonsense for you today. Yeah, we're kicking it up again. We are. We, well, I was well excited for this one. Me too. Me too. <laughs> We've got a TED Talker on. Hey, he's had two million views. Two million. Well, not quite two million. Almost. Almost. We rounded up to the nearest hundred. Nearest million. He's not. <laughs> he's not far off. He's not no. far. Off. He might even be at two million now. He's not. And also, it's a bit of a subject that's very near and dear to my heart too. oh Wayne that's so emotional which is all about emotional health yeah I like what you did there (laughs) well done Joe I applaud you thank you very much it was great to get him on I was so excited and he was an awesome guy and actually yeah we had a great conversation yeah um yeah so we've got we haven't even said who it is I know look at the suspense we're building (laughs) tease 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 to be honest they clicked on it on the basis that they saw in the title but (laughs) good good point so you know by now (laughs) that you should be listening to Guy Winch yep writer of um, Emotional First Aid and And The Squeaky Wheel and The Squeaky Wheel relationship expert Mm. Mm -hmm. um and if you haven't checked out his TED talk I'd advise you do either before or after the episode Let's go with after. I think you're going to want to after anyway, to be honest. Yes, yeah, to be fair. Which we'll put in the show notes as well. Um, and yeah, we cover a lot of ground here. We talk about uh, loneliness. We talk about um, how emotional health affects entrepreneurship and whether or not people are tuned in to that sort of stuff. Uh, how all of the effort is on you, mm-hmm. not on anybody else. And all sorts of golden nuggets of nuggetness <laughs> yeah I love how he sort of like refers to your emotional health being like your immune system and how you need mm-hmm. to get these sort of nutrients for your mind mm-hmm. which I think is great so he gives some great pointers on that yeah um, should we let people listen let's so here it is Guy Winch okay cool so hey Guy, Guy Winch thank you so much for coming on the Powerful Nonsense podcast um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself Sure, I'm a, a psychologist and an author and a uh, speaker. I live in New York. I practice uh, here. I've uh, written a couple of books, the most recent of which is Emotional First Aid, Healing, Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. Um, I've also given a TED Talk recently about emotional hygiene, which can be found on TED.com. I also blog for Psychology Today, and uh, that's about it, I think. <laughs> Brilliant. Um I watched your TED Talk the other day. Really, really, really good. Um, And really, I kind of felt really hit home for me on a lot of things as well. I was saying to you, like, (laughs) I've got so many things that I think I'm just not going to be able to help but bring up from my personal kind of life that I think that you've just hit on. We're not going to make it into a therapy session. Not a therapy session for me, (laughs) but you you just hit the nail on the head on so many things. Um, One thing we wanted to ask, though, was um, why did you kind of feel that uh, Emotional First Aid was a book that you kind of felt that you needed to write? I actually didn't feel I needed to write it. I felt somebody should. (laughs) (laughs) I felt it was a book that needed to be, that needed to exist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when I was, when I was considering, you know, another book, um, I had the idea and I was absolutely certain, well, somebody must have done this. Somebody must have looked at the research 
and looked at you know common emotional injuries we all sustain in daily life like failure and rejection and 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 written something to help people figure out what's actually happening to them when they do experience that and what they can do about it i was absolutely certain and so you know i started searching and searching and searching and i i couldn't find one and then i thought oh right then uh, i'll do it and so that was basically the good i was really convinced it must have been done i was kind of slightly appalled it hadn't (laughs) yeah and um what sort of what what were some of the sort of health implications you saw in the research you were looking at like what made you feel okay i have to write this book there's so much research that says what could happen if you leave emotional um damage to go become infected like you speak of so you know i know from my private practice um i can see the consequences of you know small emotional injuries that then kind of get you know infected quote unquote you know the the person on the dating website that had a couple of dates with someone got rejected decided oh, i'm gonna stay off dating for a while but then it's six months then their confidence is even lower because the rule is once you avoid something you actually feel more anxious about it rather than less and so then they start withdrawing even further and then they're getting lonely and then they're getting depressed and you can really see the germs of that that seed that got planted with that one rejection that happened many months ago. Um, I, you know, that was the kind of thing that I that I really felt um, can really impact um, us, you know, in in such a large way. And uh, you know, you, you mentioned my TED talk and the, that it touched you in certain ways. I really, uh, when I wrote that TED talk, I wanted to write it about things that would be so universal. Uh, because we all have these same experiences. We all get rejected. We all fail. I think the research says around 40% of us are going to feel lonely in our lifetimes. It's extraordinarily common. Um, so, you know, and also just uh, to mention my, my this, this book, Emotional First Aid, is in 18 languages, including languages like, you know, uh, Turkish and Hebrew and Arabic and Chinese. And, and, and the reason is because it's so universal it doesn't matter what culture you're from it doesn't matter how old you are we experience things the same way um and and you know i wanted to to be able to talk and to write about um these experiences people have and what they can actually do about them to start getting people up to speed a little bit on on what's been happening in the field of psychology because we are so absolutely terrible at getting word out you know i mean you'll you'll read in the news every moment about this new this trans fat is a yes and this trans fat is a no and you know the people know the minutia of you know of everything to do with their diet and they don't know anything to do with their emotional health and so there's a lot of catching up to do and you mentioned the fact that it's such a universal thing um and, and the fact that you were appalled that the book obviously hadn't been written. Um, why do you think that it's only just starting to get into the consciousness now of society about how important um, looking after our uh, mental health? And why do you think it's only just taken now to kind of start to appear? Well, is it starting? I mean, other, <laughs> I'm still doubtful about whether that's actually true. I think that, you know, I mean, I have people... Uh, I get many emails uh, because of the TED Talk especially it's been seen almost two million times by now and um, and I get a lot of emails from people writing to me saying something like I watched my my wife made me watch your talk and I started and I started crying but I have no idea why can you tell me why and first of all no uh, because I don't read minds and I don't know who you are but secondly, um, it's exactly that level of lack of sophistication that people are having a feeling that they can't even identify not only the feeling they're having, but what triggered it. That's how unsophisticated we are. Okay, so those are not probably uh, the most common. I think they're a little bit below the curve, as it were, but, but it's not unusual for people to, 
to feel that way. When I ask people in sessions with my patients, I'll say to them, well, well what are you feeling right now? And uh, 19 times out of 20, 99 times out of 100, I'll get an answer that includes one emotion. And we never have one emotion at a time. We have a blend of them. It's like a cocktail. We have a little bit of this, a dash of that, you know, the, you know, a spritz of that. You know, it, and, but, but we describe it as I feel this or I feel that. It's like primary colors. There are four of them. We don't know any of them. <laughs> and, and it's really, and so if you can't even identify how you're feeling and distinguish between certain things and realize that we're having sometimes contradictory feelings. You might, you know, you might feel really glad, but also really upset. You might feel really angry, but also really loving. Uh, and a hundred other feelings at the same time. I mean, so the whole discourse has to elevate in sophistication um, to a much higher level than it's at at the moment. And, 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 you know, you're saying we're starting to see this now. I do hope we are, but we have a long way to go. Mm, definitely. And then where do you think you have to actually start? Is it actually going straight back to ch- like to children in education? Where do you feel that emotional intelligence has to sort of come in? Look, the thing about children is we have a captive audience for 12 years, right? I mean, they're, we're, they're in, you know, in school for 12 years or 10, however much it is, um, we're teaching them things, you know, we're, we're teaching them what, what happened, you know, in, in, in Roman times and, and what happened in Greek times, and we're teaching them all kinds of wonderful chemical experiments that they'll never do again in their life, and we're teaching them <laughs> to identify, you know, all kinds of creepy crawlies and plants that, you know, it's great, but they'll never remember. And the one thing we're not teaching them is life skills. The one thing we're not teaching them is, oh, this is how your mind works, you know, when, you're, when your brain is saying this to you, eh, sometimes it might not be true. Um, th- there is so much that actually educate children to create the kind of awareness that we need to create. Uh, we have them as a captive audience. To me, it's the most important lessons we actually can be teaching them, and we're not. And, and why, do you think that, <clears throat> why do you think that we're failing to do that? You know, I mean, even when it comes to physical health, you know, in my day, and granted, my day has been a while since that was that day, but still, <laughs> you understand my point, but still, you know, at the time, the, the, the extent of our physical education was sex education, some kind of horrific slideshow, and um, horribly uncomfortable facts that we all try to not talk about later. Um, but that was the bulk you learned about even physical education. We're not teaching people how to take care of themselves physically much. I mean, maybe today that is included a little bit in, in, in you know, in the sex education, physical education. But we have these minds, we have these bodies. Wouldn't it be terrific if we learned a little bit more, or actually much more, about how they function, about how relationships function, for example, about how friendships function, how romantic relationships function. Um, you know, I get so many young couples come to see me, half my practice is couples, and they'll come in and they'll literally say, well, we're having problems, but our philosophy is, if it was meant to work out, it would work out. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, I'm not against necessarily waving the flag of passivity that broadly, but it's probably a little defeatist to do that, because relationships don't just go somewhere themselves, they actually require work. It's like standing at a construction site and saying, well, if the house wanted to be built, you, know, <laughs> you need to build it. It's <laughs> a good point. And what sort of practices do you think, then, that need to be done in schools, then? Is there actual sort of practices? I know a lot of people talk about meditation and stuff. They're sort of trying to get a bit more mindfulness into the classroom. Is that the sort of stuff you're speaking about? I would absolutely include that kind of thing because I think that's very, very, very valuable. The idea is not just information, but tools. And mindfulness meditation is a wonderful uh, tool. You know, we have this epidemic of uh, attention deficit going on. Mindfulness meditation is is great for that. It's uh, it's a wonderful centering, calming, anti-stress uh, uh, mode and and a tool. And wouldn't it be great to actually teach it 
to uh, children. I mean, if a child can't sit still for a minute, but they learn mindfulness from a young age and they actually can learn to focus on their breathing and experience it in different parts of their body and really focus on that and get lost in that a little bit, it would do wonders for their concentration. You know, a lot of the times actually children fail out of school, not because they're not sharp enough academically, but because they don't have the behavioral discipline to sit still and absorb and participate in that way. So yeah, mindfulness meditation would be a wonderful tool, but that's just one of many, many we could be teaching. And what sort of things do you think beyond meditation? That because you talk about um, obviously emotional first aid and and that sort of thing. What sort of things do you think we should be teaching, particularly children, um, to start um, doing just to kind of protect themselves from the negative things? Right. So, for example, you know, my the first chapter in my book is about rejection. Um, that's about as common as an injury gets in terms of psychological injuries and you know in school we have this uh, here in the states and I'm sure actually everywhere we have this epidemic of bullying Um, it's not an epidemic now it's been going on forever but there's a little more attention to it now Um, bullying is a form of extreme rejection right I mean it's a form of ostracism it's 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 you know you're being given the message and and you're not being given the support and so the message is you don't belong here we're gonna mock you make fun of you intimidate you Um, now most parents, when their child comes home from school after being bullied at all kinds of ages, or when the child comes home because they just found out, when they just found out that there's a birthday party that everyone's going to, but they weren't invited, they feel absolutely horrible. And most parents will say, "Well, don't you know? Don't mind them, and it doesn't matter what they think." And no, no, you're beautiful anyway, and you know whatever it is. And um, but if you actually understand how rejection works, and you understand that it is us in a variety of ways and you understand how it does that, then you would actually approach it differently. So, for example, one of the things we know from rejection is it does not respond to reason. Um, in experiments that people did with rejection, they, they had a, a rejection scenario that was, that was manufactured in which people who thought they were signing up for one experiment were in the waiting room, um, and there are two confederates sitting in the waiting room supposedly waiting for an experiment with them, and one of the confederates will pick up a ball and toss it to the other, and the other will toss it to the actual subject who tosses it to the first person, and then the two confederates just start tossing among themselves, excluding the subject after one to two rounds. Um, and then coincidentally, after a few rounds of that, the experimenter comes out and brings in the subject and coincidentally asks them about their mood and all these kinds of things. And so, you know, you might think, all right, so, you know, two strangers didn't toss me a ball in a waiting room. As far as rejections go, that's pretty much as light as it can possibly, possibly, possibly get. But yet, subject after subject reports feeling emotional pain, uh, a drop in self-esteem, a drop in mood, feeling really, really bad, feeling surges of anger, feeling this this unsettledness which is related to our basic need to feel that we belong and when it's dislodged we get very unsettled. Um, so we know though that people you know, report all this emotional pain. If you tell a subject in that experiment, not if you, they did, so they told the subject in that experiment, um, alright so we have all this information, so here's the thing though, it wasn't real, it was rigged. Um, you didn't actually get rejected. Those were confederates, or if it's a computer program, that's the computer program. So they tell them the rejection, uh, the rejection never happened. And then they ask them again, does it still hurt? And all the subjects say the same thing, you yeah, know, it still hurts. In other words, even finding out that you actually didn't get rejected, it, it wasn't real, is not sufficient to make the pain go away. It might go away a little bit quicker than it had, would otherwise, but it doesn't instantly evaporate. So when, when, when a kids are feeling rejected, oh, when they did experiments, for example, they were telling them that they were rejected by members of groups that they hated, like the Ku Klux Klan and that kind of thing. So, so when parents are saying to kids or teachers, 
oh, you don't like them anyway, it doesn't matter, it doesn't really help the child much. The child is then going to feel even more like a loser because, well, now I didn't like them and I still feel bad, I must be really, you know, something must be really wrong with me. So we have to educate, for example, children um, about how certain things impact us and impact all of us. Rejection hurts regardless. It doesn't respond to reason regardless. Um, the things we need to do to make ourselves feel better involve, you know, boosting our self-esteem and, and reconnecting uh, to people so that we do feel we belong. In other words, if I'm a parent and, and a 10-year-old comes home and they're feeling really bad, the first thing I would do is call two of their friends and see if they can come over for a play date or for an afternoon, that afternoon, to, to literally demonstrate, no, 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 there are people who appreciate you, who love you, who are interested in your company. That will do more. Even if the kid's like, no, I don't want to see anyone, you'll know, you know, hiding and shame is not a good thing either. I would insist they do it casually. Let's all go to a movie then with your friends. But, but do something that really restores that sense of belonging, restores that self of, you know, worth that they have from people around them. Um, and so anyway, that's just an example. There, there's so many specifics that we can actually apply. And then children, if they knew them, could apply them to themselves if we just were more sophisticated in our understanding. Mm-hmm. And what sort of happens if you sort of leave them? Because I know you talk about wounds. So are some people more susceptible? To, so if it was me and Wayne and we both get rejected, is one of us maybe more, if we've been rejected a lot in the past, is that wound going to be a lot bigger in me than it is to Wayne? Is that how it works? Well, yes. I mean, if you think about, uh, I mean... Uh, I, I consider, in, in my book I call, in the chapter about self-esteem, I call it a, our emotional immune system, as it were. Now, if you think about it that way, um, if, a, if, a, if a cold is going around uh, your group of friends, um, it could be one of you will get it and the other not, because one of you has a stronger immune system and the other one doesn't, or because one of you is actually fatigued and run down and therefore more susceptible in that moment. So there could be both trait and state characteristics that would make one of you more vulnerable or more resilient to whatever's going on, and that's true emotionally as well. In other words, some people are more re- sensitive to rejection, some people are just more resilient and more robust as it were, in other words, just they were born that way. But within that, even somebody who's pretty resilient is going to have times in their lives when circumstances and other things conspire, and they're less so, and somebody who's less resilient can actually work on boosting their resilience so that they become more so. Um, So yes, there are individual differences, but we still have all kinds of latitude to instill all kinds of of, uh, of, uh, improvements, as it were, if if we knew how to do it. Do you think that um, with things like social media and things like Tinder and things like that that are really on the rise at the moment, do you think that that's starting to um, positively or negatively affect maybe in particular younger generations, but people in general because of things like instant feedback and things like that? Okay, first of all, I think it is the younger generations using Tinder. I I mean, I... I'm not on Tinder, but I'm assuming that it draws probably more younger people, but maybe not. You can tell me if that's not true. But um, that is a, it's a double-edged sword uh, because it depends how you take it. And again, when it comes to all the electronic stuff, all the virtual stuff, you don't have the benefit of knowing what's going on on the other side. So you might have reached out to someone you think is incredibly compatible. Uh, you know, you, you're everything they say that they want and they're not responding, and you might feel horribly rejected, but you have no idea what's going on uh, on the other side. It could be that that's a person who actually is still in a relationship and was really pissed off 
and the person they're with and decided to create a profile, but really they're not interested in doing anything about it. It could be that as you're, as you're, you know, um, uh, swiping them right and left and letting them know it's great, uh, they're getting hit by a car. God forbid, you know. I'm just saying, <laughs> you have no idea what's going on. And so, yeah. I always say to people, well, if you can fill in the blanks, why would you possibly want to fill them in with something that's going to make you, that's going to diminish you in any kind of way? Why not fill them in with? Well, they're probably back with their ex, or they're you know probably uh, you know uh, busy, or they probably realise my pictures are fake. I shouldn't do it. Whatever it is, why not? Why not? You know, think about it in a way that actually makes you feel better rather than makes you feel worse. If you don't know, just make the choice that's better for you. Mm-hmm. And this podcast is all about sort of helping uh, young people, especially get into sort of creating businesses as well. And obviously, you speak a lot about empathy, and empathy is really linked to actually finding problems in people. Have you got any sort of techniques or tactics that you think could be useful for um, young people to adopt? Because, I don't know, are we having sort of an empathy um, epidemic where actually young people aren't as empathetic as they used to be or is anything like that? Look, there's, there's, uh, there is some research to show that um, there's young people are a little less empathetic, perhaps. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not convinced, personally, that that's uh, necessarily the case because... Uh, um, it, look, here's, here's the thing about empathy. It, it's actually a, a cognitive exercise. It's not. Uh, it, it, it's people think of empathy as you know. You see something, and either you feel for the person or you don't. No, that's sympathy. Empathy is really being able to understand the other person's experience, and you can't do that as a drive-by. You you, you actually have to pause. You have to really consider the other person's situation the background, the context. You really have to almost like close your eyes and imagine yourself in their position, literally what it feels like to be them, what it feels like to be, uh, you know, their gender, their race, their level of ability or disability. Um, And then you have to imagine the scenario very, very slowly and vividly. I I call it, in an article I wrote about it, I call it, it almost requires like a certain Jedi mind trick because because it's really like trying to like, like, put your consciousness in someone else's experience and then from then from that position look around and go how would this make me feel but it, it's, it's an exercise that requires a certain amount of concentration and so people aren't taught how to do it you know some people do it naturally but we need to teach how to do it it's complicated <clears throat> excuse me um, so kind of linking again into the entrepreneurship side of things uh, but I think this covers everything what you've been saying with terms of rejection and things like that there there's an innate sort of fear of failure in people i think um is there a way that you can kind of overcome that fear you talk about in entrepreneurship or in general you kind of entrepreneurship and and in terms of personal or if they're different look in, in entrepreneurship in general um is uh, an emotional roller coaster Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter how you do it, because uh, what makes it that is is because it, you're not following a a set out path that you know. Okay, I need to I need to uh, you know become a lawyer. Then I need to you know get get licensed. Then I need to join the law firm. Then I need to work up from there. There's not a clear set path, and you know the stations of it. You're actually there's suddenly a sudden turn here and a swoop over there. You know entrepreneurs and and startups never usually go from A to B without incident. They usually zigzag all over the place and end up in a slightly different place than they ever thought they would be. Um, they're incredible ups and downs. Um, and you have to have a lot of stamina and resilience to persevere because there will be many, many places along the road where you'll get discouraged. But to make it more general, when we're thinking about failure, for example, so most people know failure is uh, disappointing, 
demoralizing perhaps, uh, affects our ego, our self-esteem a little bit. All right, fair enough there. But do people know that failure actually distorts your perceptions? That it will actually make you look at the same goal that you had a week ago and see that goal now as more different because it seems a little further away and a little more out of reach after a failure. Do they know that it distorts your perceptions about yourself? There's one very famous experiment in which they they gave people, uh, two groups of people, anagrams. And there were four letter anagrams, right? So, and, uh, that tricky, right? Um, except half the people got impossible anagrams, even though they looked very doable, and half people got very doable anagrams. So the people who struggled with the impossible ones felt terrible after the, you know, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was that they did them. And then they had them do another round, and they gave both groups very, very doable anagrams. Again, easy four-letter anagrams. Well, the group that had the impossible ones failed miserably at the very, very doable ones. Now, the doable ones were doable probably at a third-grade level, and yet adults couldn't do them because not all of that group, but a significant amount of it, had that failure had convinced themselves, I'm not good at anagrams. And because they were convinced they weren't good at anagrams, they couldn't solve a puzzle that they were perfectly capable of solving. Now, it's just an example of how failure impacts us. It really distorts how we see things. And unless we know that and then correct for it, we're going to be influenced by that perception in not a good way. And I guess that sort of applies over. So if a young person starts their first business and it fails straight away, I guess that kind of knocks their confidence or maybe start in the next one. Is there sort of anything you can kind of do to kind of, do you have to kind of re- reprocess what you went through and why, why you failed? Or is, it, is there sort of any techniques there? Of course. But first of all, I should say, I mean, if people look at, you know, if people are following really successful entrepreneurs, they, they will find out that very, 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 very few of them uh, were successful in their first venture. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very few. You look at somebody like Tony Shea, the, the CEO of Zappos. I don't know who, who those uh, figures would be in the UK, but uh, do, do you know who he is? Uh, yeah, Tony Shea. The, so, you know, someone like that, you know, and his, he wrote a book called Delivering Happiness, but it's very, very clear, not only that, you know, how, how rough it was in the first uh, go round, but that he was really, even with Zappos, you know, right at the edge of going under. And then, you know, very short while later, was selling it to Amazon for a billion dollars. So, the question is, so, so what do you do when you experience a failure? Now, here's the thing. When, when we fail, there are the circumstances that we don't have a control over and the ones that we do. Obviously, the, the important part is to focus on what we do have control over or to look at the things we don't and figure out how we might assume control over them. But mostly, uh, you know, we, we don't make a thousand mistakes in life. We make two or three, each of us, and then we repeat them in endless varieties. So, you know, the, the person, for example, has, has time management problems. They have time management problems. You know that, that term, somebody who has time management. But you would think for a minute, well, how come they can't fix that? If they know they always have an issue with time management, why aren't they correcting for it and fixing it, right? I mean, it would be the most common thing, like, because if that's hurting you in business, how haven't you been able to figure that out? And people aren't able to figure that out primarily because there are certain blind spots which are contributing it to it, and they're not looking for the blind spots. They're just saying, okay, I'll give myself more time, but that doesn't cover for the blind spots. The blind spot are your assessment of how long certain things take is off. So you can give yourself as much time as you want. It's your assessments that are off, unless you understand where those assessments are off, what you're not accounting for, or you know that kind of thing. Um, so you, you want to figure out what your blind spots are. Now, failure then, what a wonderful uh, illustration of that. If you can actually look at the failure and figure out, well, where did things go wrong? Where could I have done 
better? What could I have done to avoid this? And you're literally trying to figure out, you know, okay, what what was my what what were my mistakes, and and then try and generalize them. It wasn't just that this person who I relied on, you know, reneged and suddenly I didn't have the thing that I thought I would have. It's maybe I rely on people too much, and maybe the lesson is that I always need to have a backup, even if I think the person is extremely reliable, because you just never know. In other words, you really want to be like a detective and look through that experience, sift through it for the clues that will tell you what you need to watch for next time, what you can do differently next time, what you need to watch for. And like it, the detectives are impassionate, the best ones. You know, they're, they're, they're not emotionally involved, so that's a tricky thing to do when you're the suspect. But, um, but that's what you need to do. You, you really need to, uh, to look at that in a certain way and to draw the conclusions and figure out, all right, if I'm doing it differently, what am I doing differently? Um, and then you can learn. <clears throat> I've been reading a book um, recently by um, Dr. Bruce Lipton. I don't know if you've heard of him. And it's called like The Biology of Belief. And he talks a lot about exactly what you said there. If you kind of have those habits that just keep those mistakes you keep making over and over again. How, and he talks a lot about they're just subconscious things. And actually, how much how much do you kind of uh, agree with that sort of philosophy? He says, well, you'll keep making the same mistakes because they're nine, your subconscious is in control, say, 95% of the time. And so you're actually only making con- conscious decisions 5% of the time. And then I guess some of the, um, uh, the, the cures that you're saying to actually get over that are very conscious things. How do then they end up reprogramming those, reprogramming those sort of subconscious um, habits? Because I think that you can actually, once you figure out where the error is, it could be the subconscious, um, you know, habit, like I mentioned in the example, is that, you know, I, I'm so conscientious about what I do that I'm not being, and I'm, and I'm so trusting that I'm not actually, you know, building in safeguards for what other people do. Or, you know, it could be that I'm such a purist. I think that if the idea is great and the merits are wonderful, then things should happen. But I'm not enough of a realist. You know, like the people who never get promotions at work because they're so busy doing their job, they don't realize that half your job is political. And if you're not making your managers aware of what you're doing, you can do the most stellar thing you know, that you can, but there's some other person who's doing half of what you're doing, but managing up all the time is going to get promoted. And so if you're a purist and you're an idealist and you're like, well, that's not the way things should be, yeah, you're going to keep making the same mistake. But if you actually figure that out about yourself, and I'll say that to patients a lot of the time in my office, I'll say, well, how much attention were you, you know, paying to, you know, the people who got promoted and why they got promoted? Well, you know, my manager should know, they should, and I'm like, okay, um, first year maybe they should but now we're in the second year are you still expecting them to or are you going to figure out that if they won't let me make sure they do know and so people can actually figure out and that's a subconscious thing right because we're not walking around thinking about our philosophy of business management and human relations within it but if you actually start teasing that out and realize what your assumptions are and how you're basing your behaviors and 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 your conduct on it then you can start figuring out what you know how much of that is adaptive and how much of that needs to be tweaked. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at, at your failure and you are kind of going into detective mode and going like what went wrong, do you find that we tend to have a, a tendency to rationalise things that maybe aren't even there to justify the failure? Sure. Uh, that's. I mean, it's a very natural thing to make excuses. Mm-hmm. It's a very natural thing to externalize blame, mm-hmm. right? And it's a very natural thing to go, well, it's, I'm just unlucky. You know, that, that's, you know, things never work out for me. Um, you know, other people have it easy, etc., etc. Now, uh, to me, that's the, all some kind of 
has a flavor of self-pity in it, which... And, and, and my guideline to people is usually like, yeah, give yourself a few hours. Give yourself the rest of the day to feel really bad. And then by the next morning, get back to work and start thinking creatively. I, in, my, in the uh, chapter on failure in my book, I give an example of uh, working with a magician uh, years ago. And this is a magician who uh, needed a, a signature trick. A signature trick means that trick that you're known for, that, you know, that, that that's the thing that you do. Um, and they just were not able to come up with a, uh, a signature trick. And part of why they were not is because the way they were going about thinking about it was very, very limited. They were just looking at their current repertoire and thinking how could they tweak what they had. They, it was a very narrow kind of brainstorming, you know. And, and I remember when I was speaking with him, and I think I mentioned some of this in the book, I was saying things like, you need to think much more out of, outside the box. And he looked at me, he was a young guy, this magician. He said, well, how do you mean outside the box? I said, well, for example... Um, I would, um, um, you know, have people, uh, 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 you know, um, choose rabbits and then take a card out of the hat rather than choose cards and take a rabbit out of the hat, you know, like something. Now, right, so that was a little stupid. But, but you know, my, my point being, think creatively, you know, think about, you know, a mood you want to, uh, uh, what's the mood, what's the, what's the theme, think of just, you know, like, you have to think outside the box, you have to really use your creativity, because our, our natural way of thinking is going to keep us um, somewhat uh, um, limited. So the idea is you really want to be able to uh, um, put aside a lot of the internal messages you're getting from your gut, like, because look, there's one more thing here, our, our gut evolved to protect us. Right? That, that's what the mind evolved to do, to protect us. And so if doing this was hurtful, our mind is going to come up with reasons we shouldn't do it. That'll be protecting us. Now, not ultimately, because it'll be foiling our ambition and limiting our success. But in terms of our gut is concerned, it's doing its job. It's preventing us from getting hurt again. So we have to know when not to listen. <clears throat> Um, a lot of like um, new entrepreneurs, especially nowadays with the internet, are kind of being becoming these sort of solopreneurs or online entrepreneurs. So they're kind of working a lot, a lot of the time by themselves. Um, what sort? Of, I know you talk a lot about loneliness. Um, what sort of dangers do you see in that? Um, uh, look, I mean, I think uh, when you're, especially for for an entrepreneur, uh, there's dangers of loneliness, but there's also dangers of being too much in a bubble. Um, if you're coming up with a business idea or some kind of venture, um, you really need to be able to bounce it off other people. You really need um, feedback from other people at all kinds of different stages. Now, maybe you need to work alone to get to the point where you have something to show to get that feedback. Certainly that's possible. But it is a little bit lonely, you know. And so there are so many um, uh, meetups and uh, organizations and conferences and other kinds of things you can uh, uh, subscribe to and belong to that at least put you in touch with other people doing the same thing. You know, somebody I wrote for many years before I published my first book and I wrote for many years with zero success. And by zero, I mean a big fat zero. So um, <laughs> there was there was nothing. So, um, but I, I was persistent. I kept, you know, with each project that, you know, belly flopped, I looked at it and looked at what I need to do differently and, and persisted in all. But, you know, at some point I, I you know, I Today, for example, I, I belong to a writing group. Um, we, we meet monthly. Um, all very good people writing, actually, in different fields and different topics. But they're all good writers, and it's and it it's supportive. It, and and even though we actually really focus on the writing there, we don't sit and talk about oh the woes of publishing or 
blogging or writing screenplays or whatever people are doing, we actually don't do that. We really focus on just the writing and the feedback. The sense of camaraderie, the sense of, you know, you're in the trenches with other, you know, people um, is extremely valuable. And I think it's valuable not just for writers, which is also an isolative kind of, uh, you know, a thing, but, but for anyone who's endeavoring and who's working alone. Um, if you can't do it in person, you can do it virtually, you can do it online. But I, I really think it's a good idea because, you know, the isolation um, can be sometimes a ha- hard habit to break if you've got into it a little too much. Mm-hmm. We were talking as well, just before we, we started talking to you, um, about the fact that people can be surrounded by loads of people and yet still feel really really lonely Uh, we were thinking of examples of when we were at uni um, and people were on campus and they're surrounded by brand new people every single day and yet still felt the need to isolate themselves Um, I was wondering if you might be able to kind of talk about that a little bit and and like why people tend to do that so first of all the definition of loneliness is entirely subjective it really depends only, it only depends on whether you feel either emotionally or socially disconnected from the people around you or both. Now, the research, I forget the percentage, but like 30-something percent of people in marriages feel lonely. They're going to bed with somebody every night. They might have children around them, but they feel very lonely because they feel disconnected. There are certainly many marriages which are disconnected. So, and in my TED talk, uh, I think you saw, I spoke about you know, I'm not going to give it away for people who want to see it, but I spoke about a time in my life where I felt extremely lonely and didn't realize it and how it impacted things. But it's important to, um, to realize that loneliness, as far as emotional wounds go, is one of the more dangerous. Um, and unfortunately, it's one of those things we don't know. But um, chronic loneliness will, will lower your life expectancy by... Uh, uh, by uh, a significant amount. It will increase your likelihood of an early death. It will significantly increase, increase your likelihood of uh, sustaining all kinds of illnesses and diseases because we know that when you feel lonely, um, your immune system immediately becomes compromised to a certain extent. You, your body feels very stressed as if it's under assault. So there are all these stress hormones that you have. You develop a very, very negative mindset in which you perceive people um, and you evaluate your existing friends, relationships, family members as being much less strong, much weaker, uh, and less supportive than they actually are. Um, You uh, are so afraid of being rejected again because you have so little layers of protection, you know, in in that mode, that you tend to withdraw and you tend to see things you know, as very negative. You tend to be unaware of the negative vibe you're putting out, which then perpetuates it because you actually went to the party, but you ended up standing in this corner and scowling. And lo and behold, no one came over, which just just reassured you that, yes, I knew it, it validated that no one likes me. Well, you know, you were standing and putting out such a negative vibe that who would approach you? So, but you're not aware of it, right? You know, or, or you finally go on a date, you force yourself, but you feel so self-conscious that you come across either way too strong or way too hesitant or just not yourself. So it, it's actually really important um, to realize that loneliness is actually a dangerous condition. I'm not saying somebody, an entrepreneur, a young business person who's slogging away and spending, you know, weeks weeks in their, in their room trying to get something off the ground, could be they're too busy to even think of it. But you need to have some kind of moderation there. So, you know, 
Work as hard as you want. Create one night a week where you go out and you socialize. Force yourself if you're not in the mood. You know, it's the same with young parents. You know, when, when the first child comes along and I say to the parents, you have to preserve a sense of couplehood. You must have a date night. You have to go for coffee. And they say, well, we're going to go for coffee and spend half an hour trying not to call home to see if everything is okay. And I'm like, great, do that. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you could spend 40 minutes trying not to call home the next time. And maybe the third time you'll be able to actually have five minutes there where you didn't think of the baby. But do it. And it's the same thing with loneliness. You know, keep, uh, keep the social contacts going. You know, unfortunately, people are blind often to the options that they have. I, was, uh, I told a story to someone else, but there, there was, there was a, a radio call-in show I did here in, uh, in the States when my book first came out, and they had a Facebook page. And they, it was a very popular show. They had a big Facebook page, and people were writing in questions. And one person wrote in, well, but what about if I can't find anyone else who feels like I do. And she asked me the question, the host, you know, on air, and it was live, and I said, you know, the person who wrote that, you just told me there were 150 comments and questions. There are 150 people on that page who feel like he does. And look, they're their pictures and their names. It's not anonymous, it's Facebook. You can message any one of them. Or you can just put another message on there saying, if anyone wants to talk to me, I'd love to talk. But he literally looked at the 150 messages and thought, there's no one who feels like me, even though there are all of them, right there. You actually found where they are. So it, it, it's what loneliness does. It really blinds us and it, and it makes it distorts our perceptions and makes us believe things that aren't true. And it's really something we need to be much, much more attentive to than we tend to be in society in general. It seems as well, you keep, kind of with all of these problems, failure, loneliness, rejection, all of that, seems to every single one of them seems to put you on a vicious cycle of um, you're, it's, you're making yourself worse because because you failed and you failed more than once you assume therefore that I'm, I am a failure and therefore you look at future problems with that same viewpoint. Is there any way that you can kind of protect yourself from getting on that vicious cycle to try and kind of you know, almost cling on to the edge and not, not sink deeper? First of all, that's completely true and completely unfortunate that when it comes to these emotional and psychological things, a vicious cycle is very, very much in the offing. Now, um, in the 14th century, in the 13th, 14th century, when the bubonic plague was spreading around Europe, and I know you're thinking, how on earth is this related? (laughs) Um, When the bubonic plague was spreading around Europe, people didn't know what was causing it. They had all kinds of, you know... uh, mystical and, and whatever. So when somebody in the household would fall ill, what they would do is close all the windows and shut all the doors to keep out the bad spirits that are causing the plague, thereby keeping the germs inside and making it circulate even worse, that vicious cycle that was at that point born of ignorance because they just didn't realize what was causing it and what they were doing was actually the opposite of what they needed it to do. And my feeling is, you know, that's pretty much what happens to us psychologically, something makes us anxious, so we decide the best thing to do is to avoid it. Except avoidance increases anxiety, so by avoiding it, we are absolutely making ourselves more anxious about it. You had a bad meeting with an investor, you're gonna put off having meetings with investors, you are gonna be plenty anxious when you meet with one next, because now you're out of practice, and now you've built it up in your head as a much scarier thing than it was. Mm -hmm. I'm just using that as an example. So the psychologically, again, I come back to this, our psychological sophistication, is poor. It, it, I'm not saying Middle Ages, but I wouldn't put it much past, you know, the early 20th century, say, you know, and I said, because really, I mean, people are still quoting Freud, and I'm like, 
that you got most of it wrong. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. you got it right that there's an unconscious, but not the not one that functions in the way he thinks, and not for the reasons he thinks. So, um, but that's what people are quoting. That's what they know. Well, that's over a hundred years now. Can we please move on? Can we please get a little bit more current? Mm-hmm. Um, and and. I think that when we are, when when people become more sophisticated, when they learn more, or when they even have the presence of mind to know, you know, let me go read a little bit about failure. Let me find out a little bit more about rejection. Let's learn a little bit about this. The information's out there if you look for it. We're just not looking for it. So when people become a little bit more sophisticated, when they become more motivated to figure out uh, how their minds work and what they can do about it, I think we'll start to make progress. I think we'll start to be able to not step into some of these vicious cycles or step out of them more rapidly than we would otherwise before they get too deep. But the awareness has to come first. Mm-hmm. So what would you say are some of the sort of most emotionally nutritious snacks out there for, um, say, some of your clients or other people listening? All right, so just uh, very briefly, um, I think self-compassion is delicious. Um, I think, um, and by self-compassion, I mean that we want to have an internal voice and an internal dialogue that is as compassionate as we would be to a, a dearest friend or family member. Uh, you know, usually there's there's uh, uh, the do unto others uh, thing doesn't quite work because we're actually much nicer to others than we are to ourselves. So um, in in our head, so we need to have that kind of self compassion. You know, something again. You know, you failed. Rather than list why you're a loser or why you're an idiot, um, why don't you actually list? Um, you know, why don't you actually pat yourself on the back for perseverance? Why don't you pat yourself on the back for the effort that you did made make and then switch and transition to, but let me see how I can do better. Um, So I think self-compassion is one thing that I think is very, very important. I think um, we have to think of our self-esteem as, you know, I call it the emotional immune system. If you want, you can think of it as the armor that you wear to daily life. Because when your self-esteem is higher, from whatever set point you're at, it, we all have a range, right? Some days it's like hair days. We have some, we both have great hair, but I'm just saying some of us you know, so, I mean, I don't have enough left, but, but I used to have good and bad hair days. Now I just have, I still have hair days. But, um, but in the same way, our self-esteem is like that. It's like you wake up some days feeling great about yourself, and you wake up some days feeling not. And you just waking up, nothing happened yet. But just that's just how it is. And so you want to try and be on the upper range of what, on the upper side of what your range is. And so if you think of your self-esteem as a, the armor you wear to daily life, and, and how you feel about yourself, then you might be a little bit more hesitant to start poking holes in it by calling yourself names and focusing on all your, uh, you know, uh, uh, missteps and, 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 and weaknesses and defects rather than actually focusing on your strengths and focusing on how to shore up uh, the defects. The idea is to strengthen the armor, not to weaken it. So, again, just those two things even, I think... Um, if people were more aware about and that they realize that those are things that can really make a difference for them, um, then they could start building with those as some kind of fundamental building blocks. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice for people. Um, I think it's starting there, I think, is where a lot of people go wrong. I know I certainly do. Um, I know we're coming up to the end of the time that we've actually got with you, So, but we've got two questions that we ask every single guest. The show's called Powerful Nonsense. So the two questions are, what's the most powerful piece of advice you've ever been given, and what's the biggest load of nonsense you ever heard? Ooh. Um, all right. So in terms of, I guess, um, I think the most powerful the most powerful piece of advice um, I've, I've been given um, 
is um, when I was in graduate school, I had one of my first um, uh, supervisors. Um, uh, actually, he was my first supervisor, and we were each getting um, assigned our first patient. So all very exciting. And I was all of, I think I was 24 at the time. And um, the patient that I was assigned was actually a professor at the university who was, I think, uh, in his late 30s. And I was like, oh my goodness, so here I am, I'm a first-year graduate student, being assigned an actual professor who's so much older than me and probably much smarter than me. So I went to my supervisor and I said, I think I should probably switch to a different patient because I'm probably too young to take on this person. And he looked at me very kind of straight-faced and he said to me, oh, okay, I see. And, and how old do you feel you should be? And I was like, okay, I understand. So in other words, his message to me was, you create in your head, um, and he did spell it out, because you create in your head what you're, uh, what you're capable of, what you're ready for. Um, you can try and be realistic, but there's no need to be too humble. There's no need to be, you know, to wait too long. Uh, you're in this professor was coming to a clinic. He knows it's graduate students. You know, he's not going to an office and paying $400 an hour and oh, out walks a 24-year-old. He's coming to a clinic. So, so don't diminish yourself. Plenty of others will try and do that. Try and keep yourself, you know, try and at least be your, your best advocate. And being your best advocate, I think, is a very, very important um, piece of advice. The rubbish is a little harder to answer just because there's so much to sit through there. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's so many, um, so many gems of of, uh, of uh, garbage that I've I've received over the years, or I've heard of, over the years. But I'll 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 give you one that um, somebody once said to me, and then I I hear repeatedly um, from a lot of my patients, and that is that they'll talk about a relationship, they'll talk about a an endeavor, and they'll say, well, if it was meant to work out it will work out. And again, I think I mentioned that at the beginning. Did I mention that at the beginning? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the, 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 the flag of passivity and of, you know, like, let's just roll over and let life happen and then feel victimized by it. Um, mm -hmm. The idea is you are, you, you are the master of, of your life in terms of you get behind the wheel and you navigate where you want to go. And you set your eyes somewhere and go where you want to go. Don't, you know, the road takes you there or the road takes you here, then get off the road. And if the vehicle can't get up the hill, find another. In other words, the idea is there's so, so few things we can't achieve. People have achieved things thought impossible uh, because of their disability, because of their lot in life, because of where they started. You, it, there's there's so few, you know. I mean, yes, if you're if you're you know all of all of uh, you know a meter forty, you're unlikely to make it in, as a basketball player. Fine, but th but there are few things like that. Most of the things we can do, it's about perseverance. It's about persistence. So listening to the oh, if it was meant to work out, it would work out, or you know, if 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 uh, whoever wanted you to succeed, then you will succeed. No, uh, it's about the luck you make. It's about the life you make, and it's about how persistent and ambitious you are in wanting to get there. And if you are sufficiently ambitious and persistent, you're very likely to get there eventually. Since you can't know when, you have to keep trying, but you're very likely to get there eventually. 
thank you so much for your time guy is there any way that other people can who, who like your stuff and would like to hear more about you where can they go so they can go to my website which is guywench.com that's g-u-y-w-a-n-c-h.com they can find my TED talk on TED.com just put in guywench at uh, TED.com uh, um, my website will also get them links to my uh, articles on psychology today, um, to uh, where to get my book, um, and all the languages that it's in, so they can look for it in whatever language of origin they have if they prefer. It should be widely available on all the Amazons and, and that kind of thing. It's an audio book, paperback, and uh, and ebook. So, um, but most of the uh, stuff they can find through my website. And we'd just like to thank you for not rejecting us and coming on the podcast. <laughs> it made us feel very good. Yeah, thanks, Guy. I'm glad it did, and you're very, very welcome. That was that was Guy Winch, Gem. The Guy Winch. The Guy Winch. TED Talk extraordinaire. TED Legend. TED Legend. Two million. Nearly two million views. And hopefully this podcast will get two million listens. Eh? <laughs> eh? We can hope. We can we be can ambitious. Hope. We can pray. Uh, so thank you, Mr. Winch, if you are listening. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you are. Appreciate your time. We certainly do. And again, thank you for not, not rejecting us. Yeah. Yeah. It's given us a lot of emotional growth. My, yeah. <laughs> my emotional first aid cabinet is stocked up with the fact that Guy Winch was on my podcast. I did have a massive emotional plaster to put over you in case he, he did reject us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, you can check out his stuff. Check out his stuff. The TED Talk, we're going to put that in the show notes for you if you haven't watched it already. Or if you have watched it already, watch it again. It's bloody good. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, any of these books, we'll link those up as mm-hmm. well. And if you want to reach out to him, obviously he's given in the episode uh, where to find him, but we'll yep. also link that in as well. Yep. Unfortunately, on Audible, I've already checked, Emotional First Aid is not on there, but The Squeaky Wheel is. So if you do want to check out The Squeaky Wheel on audiobook, head on over to audibletrial.com forward slash nonsense. Correct. Yeah! <laughs> and you, you can get that book for free. Yeah. 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 Free. <laughs> free. <laughs> we love free. Free. Okay, great. Talking of free, mm-hmm. we don't have enough Facebook likes where we put out loads of content for free straight onto your stream. That was like the most unsmooth segue <laughs> ever. I've ever done. <laughs> so apologies. But I've got a deal to make with you guys this Th- week. This one's a good one. This is a good for one. Listening. The island has just come to an end, the Channel 4 show, where people are stranded on a desert island and they have to survive. Mm-hmm. I really want to go on there. I really want to apply, but I'm also shared, shared, skitless, scared, shitless. <laughs> See, that's how scared I am. I can't even get my words out. Scared shitless that they may actually put me on the island. So here's my deal: if we get 500 Facebook likes by the time, appli- well, not by the time application closes, before applications close for the island, I will apply. So is that 500 likes on this podcast? No, no, no. On the page. Oh, 500 new people liking 500 the page. total likes on the page. I'm going to have to do some promotion. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to join me on that, Jen? Huh? If we get 500 likes, do you want to apply as well? Uh, I'll probably get chosen, though. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I see. I'm I'll, not I'll, as in good I'll shape leave. as you. It's more of a challenge exactly. for you. So you need it. You need to be malnutritioned on the island and yeah, like, maybe. choking out pigs. Are you going like to join me? No, I'm going to leave no? it to you. Okay, fine. I'll find a new challenge. Uh, <laughs> so head on over to facebook.com forward slash powerful nonsense give us a like also reviews we need those reviews on iTunes look we've got you a good guest we've got you a good guest 2 million TED Talk views exactly almost (laughs) at the date of recording 
So, that's us from Powerful Nonsense. Thank you again, Guy Winch. And we will catch you next week, Friday, 9am GMT, on your podcast streams. <laughs> on your listening devices. Go subscribe! <laughs> See you later.